Welcome to the God is Not an Asshole podcast. If you are one of the many people done with religious dogmatism, hang on. You might sense transcendence, but your church or other faith community never seem to get off the ground. You realize that honoring your conscience means more than fitting in and keeping hard to explain rules? Hang on. You could probably think of the goodness in your tradition, and you tried your best to save that baby, but there's so much bathwater. Join your hosts, David Norman Moore Jr. in California and Carrie Connolly in New Jersey, who are collaborating to bring on guests who have found life on the other side of fundamentalism. Guests with stories of how they have liberated themselves from beliefs that divide us from each other. None of our guests' narratives are identical, but we hope you'll find something in common with each of them. We invite you to experience our common bond as we all inspire even more of us to embrace the true self. Hey, everybody. Carrie and I are here with the Brian McLaren, uh, <laughs> someone who means a lot to, to both of us and to um, many of our, our listeners. And uh, for those of you who uh, don't know Brian, um, I'm pretty sure that if you're part of the community that's, a, that's connected to this podcast, you will be delighted so, Brian, how are you? I am super happy to be with you, too. I've been looking forward to this. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I'm happy to be here. Yay. So, you just, uh, you just finished another book. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, and I am intrigued. I know that everyone would love to, to hear a little about this, just based on the title. Uh, what's the title? The title is Life After Doom, <laughs> which uh, uh, sort of sucks the air out of a room when I tell people what the title is. Um, and then the, the subtitle... Brian, it doesn't suck the air out of the room more than the title of, of my book that you wrote the forward that's to. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's right. Uh, that's right. Oh, my goodness. Um, the, so uh, the subtitle is uh, wisdom and courage for a world falling apart. And, uh, yeah, so it's been an intense, uh, an intense process of writing it, but of course not writing it would have been even more intense uh, as I think you yeah. can understand. So how do you care for a world that's falling apart? I'm sorry, David. I yeah, get to yeah. 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 No, that's, that's the question. How do you, how do you yeah. care for a world that's falling apart? Yeah. Well, you know, um, this sort of is, that really the problem that I, I kind of step into and, and sit with, uh, through, through the 21 chapters of the book. And I think one of the first things is releasing the need to fix it quickly. You know, uh, one of the things, uh, uh, in one of the chapters of the book, I spent a whole chapter on the first step of 12, of uh, the 12 steps about, uh, admitting our powerlessness and, uh, and, Anyone who's been involved with the 12 steps knows that the serenity prayer is very precious to people. Uh, God grant me the, uh, the serenity, serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think, uh, one of our challenges when we face our problems, you know, from racism to 
the huge economic gap between rich and poor to the proliferation of weapons of increasing kill power to our inability to live wisely and lovingly with the planet and, and many others is that people just want to fix it so that they can get back to business. But, but what if the problem is that business, as usual, is creating the problems? So, Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and so part of, I think, the challenge is, is to, in a sense, obviously, we can't be apathetic. One of the, I, I think there are so many different routes to apathy and complacency. So one of my challenges in the book was to try to close the doors to apathy and complacency uh, in, in, in the, the many, many different doors, you know. But, um, but if, well, there's a quote I have in the book uh, from Bio Kamalafe who says, what if our response to the problem is a part of the problem? <laughs> uh, and, and so I think we're at a place where if we fix the problem in a way that perpetuates the problem, we're going to make the problem so much worse. So my, what I'm hoping people can do, first of all, to care is to be willing to let the full gravity of the situation wash over us to the greatest degree um, that, that we can. Uh, and, I think you, yeah. you, just, you just pointed out perhaps why for many of us yoga is so important um, yeah. because it doesn't, it's not an overt response, so to speak, uh, yeah. to everything, but it is a response and the processing of, uh, you know, the realities and the, and the dualities around us. But I, I, I so that people, I want to go farther with that, but yeah. so that people can connect with you in case they, they don't know you. Um, I just want to uh, mention that Carrie and I just earlier this week introduced, uh, we, we interviewed uh, Samuel Kim, who is, uh, who is a therapist whose, whose parents are missionaries yeah. and, He's processing how to feel about that. Um, uh, he's Korean American. And, and I know you two are, you, your parents were missionaries. Am, am I right? If I, well, it was actually my grandparents. My dad was raised yeah. as a missionary kid in Angola. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah. In fact, I remember you mentioned that on an earlier episode. And it was, it was my grandfather who was a, a super complicated, interesting, fascinating, heartbreaking in some ways person, but yeah. Yeah. So, so, so the question that comes uh, to mind is um, you are uh, to me, a paragon of uh, people who are able to graciously look upon um, the colonizing past, if you will. Uh, and you're able to communicate with people. And one of the features that, that I've noticed of, uh, of this podcast, um, which is still new. I mean, it, we've only been doing it for, you know, less than half a year. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that the guests always are sensitive and compassionate to the people that they have, um, that they've changed, uh, from that they've transitioned from in terms of ideology and worldview. And to me, you represent that. I, I you know, the books that you, you write, it's like, Brian is so gracious with everybody. Um, 
So maybe you can connect us and uh, all, all of the uh, listeners with what's behind that. How does that mm-hmm. happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's so funny you say that, David, because um, almost everywhere I speak, I have a few people who are really mad at me. <laughs> so, so, Well, then you're doing uh, something right, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, I, I do my best to be gracious and I do my best to not take cheap shots and I do my best to not dehumanize anybody. Um, but I, there's a quote from Thomas Merton that uh, actually I, I use in this new book that uh, I ought to have memorized, but it goes something like this. When I criticize a system, uh, people get angry at me, which shows the degree to which they identify with that system. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and uh, to me, criticizing a system is never, in, uh, I never want to identify the people with the system. Um, I want to help the people disidentify with the system uh, so that they can stop aiding and abetting it, which we all do when we're born into a system. So I suppose that's maybe something I'm very imperfect at, but that I try to do. I try to not soft pedal my critique of a system, telling the truth about a system, naming the system. Um, but then I always look at even the people involved with the system and think they're human beings and they got into this mess without realizing necessarily what they were getting into and getting out isn't easy. And of course, you know, as a straight white male, you know, from a middle class background, I, I have all of, all, all of those systems that I was born into, um, as well. So, and add to that fundamentalist Christian, all kinds of other things I was born into. And so, uh, in fact, I have a little saying, uh, Everybody is born into something. You don't get to choose what you're born into, but thank God you do get to choose what you become. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's my, my hope. But I think it's impossible to avoid when you critique the system. People whose identities are wrapped up with the system do tend to feel you're insulting them, even, I, even when it's not intended. I feel that so deeply because of the work that I do. And and before I go any further, I just and I don't expect you to remember this at all, but you and I have met a few times. We met at the Revolutionary Love Conference in 2018. And we met at, I think it was a WISC conference or- Oh, uh, yes, an, oh, yes, 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 yes. So, um, and every time that I have met you and heard you speak, you have truly embodied, first of all, you're one of the most pastoral, truly pastoral people that I've mm. ever met. And that's a rare thing. That's not, mm. I, actually, David is also one of the most, and I, I reserve that, I think, for three people in my entire wow. life that I've met <laughs> who I truly call true pastors. And you have truly embodied, I've heard you stand in front of a room and critique systems and um, including the systems that you come out of. You know, I've, mm-hmm. I've heard you do that and I've heard you do it with grace and integrity and uh, compassion. And I, I really appreciate that. One of the things that I've been thinking about as I've been listening to you speak is the ways in which, you know, the world is so invested in binary thinking. Yeah. And when you try to enter into conversation with people who are invested in systems, there is this really painful part, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I, and I have two examples that I want to think of. One was recently I was, I was speaking with an activist and I was, uh, 
uh, this was a, a person, a bill, a member of the bill of the bill pop community. And I was trying to express the fact that it is a painful process for a member of a dominant identity to divest themselves of that from that system, yeah. right? That's a, that's yeah. a painful process. Yes. And this person literally, literally rolled their eyes at me. And I get it. I get that that pain that dominant identities yes. go through is nothing compared yes. to the pain yes. that has been caused by yes. our dominance. And Carrie, yes. and, is it kind of painful for someone to roll their eyes when you say something that is so acutely important? Mm-hmm. It's, it is a little painful. It is yeah. a little painful. And the point is, is like, if we don't acknowledge the humanity of identities of dominance, then we are in turn doing exactly the same thing, which brings me to my second example, which just last night I was having a conversation with uh, a law enforcement officer who is, by everything that I can tell, a good cop, right? This is a, a man who makes good choices all, you know, in, in when he is dealing with what he's got to deal with and he deals with some bad stuff and he makes good he, human choices, but not all cops do, right? Not the yeah. system mm. of policing is deeply broken. And even that good cop can't always recognize the way that the system he's identified with so deeply is inherently broken. Yes. And that gets into this really gross, messy part of the conversation of when, when those of us are critiquing these systems. So how do you navigate that, mm-hmm. that place of discomfort where you're standing in front of this person who's a good person, who you know truly wants to be a good person and yet are still clinging to these? How do you help them navigate that? Yeah. How do you navigate that? Yeah. My goodness. Uh, first of all, those examples i think ring true and your point you know uh my wife uh, is a uh, among her many talents she's a myers-briggs trainer and she used to do work in corporations where she would help companies design jobs that would fit actual personalities that exist right mm-hmm. um so many jobs the way they're defined no human being has that set of skills Um, uh, and, and so there's this thing in that work called phases of work. And uh, often it's pictured as a clock, you know, and you can imagine if the beginning of the project is at 12 o'clock, you know, this might be in vision or it might be identifying problems and developing visions and, uh, brainstorming. And you might be around that at one o'clock where it becomes prototyping responses and then testing and evaluating responses. So there's this whole thing that then goes through manufacturing, production, testing, quality control, this whole thing. And it's to me a super useful way of understanding that work involves phases and and what's absolutely needed at one phase could be super harmful at a different phase and um and so there's this phase of for example if we're doing work in race equity belonging racial justice uh white supremacy white uh fragility all of these different spaces if we consider it a work that has many many different phases Often our arguments come because we're at different phases of the work process ourselves. Wow. Um, to, just, I'll give you an example, Carrie, because 
it's so funny you bring this up because uh, the other day I was speaking at an event and a dear friend who maybe you've known, uh, you know, uh, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis was there. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Jackie it did something quite sh- sh- shocking, even remarkable to me. She, at the end of her talk to a mostly white audience, she was talking about her, her black heritage and her her heritage. And she was especially doing this remarkable talk about the role of dance and in her, in in her black heritage, Mm. Uh, which can I just go on a quick tangent? I was in East Africa once many years ago with the, uh, the Batwa people, the, the uh, Twa people, also known as the Pygmies. And uh, this was a, a, a group who in many ways are the indigenous people of that part of East Africa. And they had been displaced by two waves of immigrants, uh, Im- immigrating tribes from other parts of Africa mm-hmm. that drove them into smaller and smaller patches of land. And they had, uh, up until a few years ago, they, there was not a single Twa who owned land. They weren't allowed to own land in the country of Burundi. Um, nobody in parliament, you know, things like, uh, no, no political representation, uh, no uh, political identity because they weren't given citizen cards. So, uh, and, and I was there right as this with a group that was trying to help with this transition. And when we arrived, they danced to welcome us. Um, mm-hmm. not, not me as a white person. I was there with one of their sons who had one, a, a Twa man who ha- had done amazing things. And he, he was kind of a hero to them. And I was with him. So they danced. And then, uh, we had a couple hours of interaction. And then when we left, they danced and walked us down the mountain to the highway. And I said to my friend, I've never seen so much dancing. And I said, this just feels so healthy. He said, Brian, this is how we survive. When we're hungry, we dance. When we're f- frightened, we dance. When we're weary, we dance. This is, yeah. we dance to survive. And so Jackie was talking about this. And then she says, I would like to offer my heritage to all of you who need a heritage of people mm-hmm. who have survived great injustice. She said, you maybe have a heritage where your ancestors committed great injustice. Um, and she said, the reason I want to do this is because anthropologists tell us everyone comes from Africa, ultimately. Some of you are just bleached Africans. <laughs> uh, but, what, but what was astounding is, it, you know, people talk about appropriation. She was almost subverting appropriation by inviting us to share one. That's to, the way to, to do it, yes. Yeah. Indeed. And, 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 you know... What you were saying earlier about the phases of work is yeah. is something that I, in the work that I do, which is predominantly in anti-racism, um, I ha- have been thinking a lot about, I th- mostly with white identity and identities of dominance, but I th- I've been thinking a lot about this, this moral arc of the universe yeah. and how this yeah. bends toward justice, right? Which implies movement, right? It yeah. implies that that we are, and so as a collective, I love what you said that depending on where in the work phase, which work phase we're in individually is, is going to define the arguments we have, right? Yes. But as the collective and, um, and speaking about our, our ancestries, you know, I have been deeply impacted by the work of Resma Menicum 
my yes. grandmother's hands. And he, he speaks about, you know, the idea of tra- white bodied trauma can start to look like a personality trait, right? Yes. As it gets passed on, right? So, so I'm really wrestling with this idea of where we are in the, in this moral arc as we bend toward justice and white people begin to start realizing, Hey, we were, our indigenous practices in Europe were colonized by the Christian church. And, and what are we going to, like, what's that mean for us? Right. What did we lose? And, and is it, is that part of why we do the things that we do now? Right. And and what do we want to, what do we want to do about that? And, and what do we, what does that look like? What is that conversation of reclamation for us look like so that we can stop doing the harm that we are doing? Right. And, um, and that is not a conversation that can be had in a tweet or in a, in a sound. Yes. Yes. That's right. Right? Exactly. Right. And, and, and I suppose part of what I, I want to very quickly say, is that, and I understand why, uh, I understand why people get tense uh, yes. because there's so much harm being done and, and we so get much. tense under all of this harm being done. Um, and, and, and in fact, the tension and the anger are also part of the process that, yes. that sometimes sets back the work and sometimes pushes the work forward. But, mm. uh, yeah. And, and, so, uh, Carrie Ker- just had one other, uh, just affirmation or, uh, uh, of, of what you're saying, um, uh, or resonance with what you're saying in different parts of the country, we're at different parts of the phase of um, work. And in one um, part of the country, if you're talking to one person versus another person, you're at different parts of the phase of work. And it's, yeah. it's very, it's not an easy thing to manage. I think I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so Brian, uh, about five years ago, we you were here in Santa Barbara, and over lunch I asked you a question that uh, uh, I'm hoping you can even um, unpack further. I, I asked you, um, in this process of uh, transformation, um, sometimes you lose some friends who don't want to join you on this journey, and... To me, uh, your very presence kind of embodies the mournfulness of all of that in behalf of many, many people. In fact, uh, I think it shows up in your writings, in your books. Um, there is a joy of discovery mm-hmm. that is concurrent with the mournfulness of loss. And so I asked you, Brian, uh, what do you do when you don't have uh, your friends anymore? And you replied, you find better friends. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's something that intrigues a lot of people, you know, people who are listening right now who, you know, ha- are, are either threatened by what could happen, what is happening, or what has happened. And when it, in, in terms of long-term friendships, can you yeah. speak to that, please? Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, this is... This is, it, it, first of all, I, David, it strikes me that this question makes perfect sense in a mobile country where most of us live in big cities. Um, it's a very different question if you live in a small town where everybody's poor and you can't get mm-hmm. away and you can't leave. Uh, I just, uh, at the same event where I heard Jackie Lewis speak, two twin brothers, uh, 
who are uh, who are both gay, um, shared their story of growing up in a tiny town in Georgia, where being gay was not an acceptable reality, and they their their salvation was being able to leave the town. If they'd stayed in the town, there was no good future yeah. they ever mm-hmm. could have uh, imagined. Um, and so I guess that's the first thing that comes to my mind. S- sometimes it's easier. So, you, you know, I'm remembering Jesus saying to the disciples, sending about two by two, they go into a town and they come to a town and look for somebody who's a person of peace, who's hospitable, who's nice, who welcomes you into their home. Um, <laughs> so even in a town where everybody else might be mean, there's somebody who's nice and they welcome you, right? But then he says, if the town doesn't want to hear what you have to say, don't stay there and keep bothering them. Wow. <laughs> he said, uh, leave the town. I, I wonder if Taylor Swift got this from Jesus, but shake it off. Just shake it off. <laughs> Go to the next town. Um, and, and, and as you leave, don't say, God damn you horrible people for not re- receiving my message and rejecting me. May fire and brimstone. He says, tell them, ah, the kingdom of God has come near you too. <laughs> so it's like, mm-hmm. leave with the blessing and move on. And I think that's what we have to try to do. Uh, we, we have to accept if people don't want us around. Um, yeah. uh, just one other quick anecdote. When I was a young pastor, uh, I was at some event and an older pastor pulled me aside. And I can, now that I'm older, I can totally imagine doing this. At the time, it really took me off guard. He, he took me aside and he had a, a word from the Lord for me. And here is his word. Um, if people are willing to accept you, don't reject them. But if people reject you, don't try to stay around because love is not rude. And it is rude to stay where you're not wanted. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, so, and I remember thinking, are you trying to tell me I'm a jerk and I'm going to lose all my friends? <laughs> like, I, I couldn't really interpret it, but I did file it away. And I realized he was, he, I think, was realizing I was not going to fit in that group uh, for too much longer. And was so, trying Brian, to, yeah. Carrie and I just had a conversation with uh, Vivian Storm, who is, uh, an African-American transgender performer. And she, you're reminding me of something she said. She said, one of the things we have to uh, stop accepting and believing, because there are a lot of things that, you know, are in our heads that are, you know, on the level of being, you know, just true is just, you know, biblical or whatever. And she said she had to let go of this idea that people bring up all the time. Family is everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because for her, everything started when she left yeah. her family. Yeah. But that sounds so reasonable. Family is everything. Yes. Yes. Mm. It is until it's not. It, like a lot of truisms, <laughs> it, it can be so true and it can be so harmful. Uh, so, yeah. That, that's, it sounds that's right. like from the, the stories that you told about uh, the, the one guy who pulled you aside and also the story from scripture about Jesus, it sounds like, you know, some, some really great examples of healthy boundaries. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> what right. What healthy boundaries, what exactly. non, non-codependent boundaries look like, right? That's, um, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here today. We are people who have left behind performance-based religion and the shame that comes with it. 
Maybe you have a personal liberation story to tell and we want to know about it. Please contact us on Twitter at God is not an asshole or text 805-703-8393 because the world needs to know that God is not an asshole.